podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to a new dawn. This is Tennis Unfiltered, seriously strong views where we don't hold back. Yes, we are still James Gray, me, George Belshaw, him, and the other guy, Calvin Betton. But we have a brand new name, a brand new logo, and hopefully a brand new attitude. We are Tennis Unfiltered. Uh, we're across all the socials. If you already followed us on Twitter, it, it's it's seamless. It's It's been like an evolution, not a revolution. Um, we are Unfiltered Tennis on Twitter. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram, Tennis Unfiltered. Very exciting. There's nothing on there yet, but you can follow us in advance of some things going on there. Um, you can still email us at the same email address because there's one thing I haven't done, and that's find a new email address for us. Um, that's the kind of 21st century operation we run here. Uh, but we are Tennis Unfiltered. We will be going forward. If you already subscribe, you'll know this because it'll have appeared in your feed. And you go, what on earth is this? And now hopefully you know what it is. Well, that's enough of talking about us. Um, there's lots to talk about going around the tennis world this this week, I should say. Uh, we are just a week away from the first Grand Slam of the year. I am here in Melbourne. George is back in London. Calvin's out in Portugal. It's, it is the most international uh, tennis unfiltered podcast ever by virtue of being the first tennis unfiltered. Calvin, you're in a very glamorous looking hotel in Portugal. Uh, it's got a glamorous name. I think it's called the Gala Opera Hotel. Well, um, I mean, you've just so... opened yourself up to a lot of stalkers there, Calvin. The, the Portuguese <laughs> well, for... fan club will be camped outside your hotel now. But um, every room in the hotel is named after a famous musician. Um, Who have you got? I'm, I'm staying in the Cliff Richard suite. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> have they uh, served you mistletoe wine in the evening uh, not yet I don't know why it's a Cliff Richard suite because it has no reference whatsoever to Cliff Richard and it just has a plaque outside saying Cliff Richard I'm between Charles Azanor and Bing Crosby uh, chance to be a fine thing I'm sure um, <laughs> I hope you're having a pleasant summer holiday Calvin uh, I, I don't have any more Cliff Richard song titles in my uh, locker yeah I'm still a bachelor boy. I like, I, like, I like how the wall behind you is see-through, Calvin. It's like you're kind of like one of the BBC News or Sky News crew. It's not see-through, it's just reflecting. It's just reflecting. It's not see-through, it's just reflecting. George, are you what okay? Room are you in there? Are you okay? <laughs> I just saw some people walking by. I was like, oh, it's like a slightly transparent wall. But no, it's no, reflection. No. I see now. You thought there Calvin was staying in that. some weird sex hotel with transparent walls. I mean, uh, I've stayed in cheap hotels. Like when you're when you're on a budget. I mean, Calvin, obviously you're you're out working, but you're always like me, always on a budget. I've stayed in some bad hotels. Transparent walls, yet to actually experience that. <laughs> I the, thought um, you were in the lobby, just to clarify, rather than your room. I wasn't suggesting that I am in the lobby. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the tournament yeah. here actually is at quite nice. It's at the Portuguese National Federation, which, in full flow, I imagine is a nice place. But it's at six indoor centre. And there's holes in the roof above four of the courts. So it's the only indoor courts in the world that where rain stops play, uh, as it did numerous times yesterday. Amazing. 
Um, since we're talking about indoor courts, there's been a bit of a storm uh, in New Zealand this week about the indoor courts in Auckland. People will know that Emma Raducanu, and if you don't, here's the news, Emma Raducanu is a doubt for the Australian Open with an ankle injury after she sprained her ankle in Auckland. Um, the tournament is technically an outdoor tournament, but it's been raining a lot in Auckland, uh, as it sometimes does, and they moved a lot of the matches indoors. There were some complaints from Raducanu and a few other players about the slipperiness of the indoor courts um, and how that may have contributed to the injury, which she is now just about back in tentative training after, but remains a doubt for the first Grand Slam of the year. Calvin, you, you obviously have experience of indoor courts uh, of all kinds of um, qualities. I mean, we talked a little bit last week about going from outdoor to indoor and how it doesn't really make a difference and you know, you're not changing your shoes or anything, but... Presumably, the conditions of an indoor court can vary pretty widely, and if they're not necessarily built as tournament courts or not prepared as tournament courts, I guess they could be in pretty bad nick. Uh, it's not bad nick. The thing is, when you get a hard court, because um, I don't know whether people know this, but hard tennis courts are made from a combination of acrylic, cement, and sand, which mm. gives it the grit. That's so it. the more the older the courts get, and the more they're played on, the sand kind of gets it gets sanded down, so it gets less gritty and therefore more slippy, if that makes sense. And then yeah. the, court speed, the court speed would get faster because there's less grit on the court. But I've actually spoke, I've, I'm not sure about this that, that Raducanu and, and various other players have said, because I've spoken to four or five players this week about this very subject, and every one of them has said the exact same thing, that you're more likely to get a uh, an ankle injury or roll your ankle on a new gritty court because your foot digs into the court. Hmm. The opposite would be the case on an old slippery court. You wouldn't roll your ankle on on something slippery, for example. Yeah. Um, and it, it was an instance after the first tournaments that we had after COVID at Loughborough um, last year. Was it last year or twenty twenty one? Now hmm. um, they'd had new courts relayed, uh, and they were in the space of twenty four hours. Luke was one who I coached. There were two really bad um, ankle injuries. Yeah. Um players rolling their rolling their ankle because the courts were so gritty. Just sticky, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I suppose with a slippy court you'd more worry about, you know, doing maybe what Serena did when she slipped at Wimbledon, you know, tearing a hamstring or, or a groin muscle. Yeah. Rather yeah, than the other absolutely. way. Absolutely. But, you yeah. know, I, I also and I, I probably don't say this enough, and maybe we don't say this enough, but like caveat the quotes straight after you've just potentially like like because Raducanu when she did it will not have known Calvin as you said last week she won't have known if she'd torn a ligament or just had like a two-day sprain yeah yeah and you know is sitting in a a room half an hour after doing that thinking oh my god am I out for six months here so probably emotions running quite quite high also I don't really know what the players were wanting there you know the tournaments they're doing they've got tournament on right they haven't laid indoor courts for a tournament it's an outdoor tournament. I'm sure they'll, they've probably laid brand new courts, as most of these tournaments do every year for the tournament. Hmm. Um, they didn't expect it to have to go indoors, so they're not laying brand new indoor courts. Yeah. And what else do you want to happen? It got you. They'd only go indoors if the tournament was getting so far behind <clears throat> it was getting in danger of not getting completed. So you know we have to make little changes and adapt a little bit. I think I think it's a bit. It's a bit poor form from the players complaining about the state of the indoor courts at tournaments where the indoor courts wouldn't expect to be used. George, did you did you have a comment on that topic? No, I was kind of just going to back up your point there, James. Actually, I mean, like 
we do so often take some kind of <laughs> quotes as gospel when someone's really angry after a loss or you know after something bad's happened i, I actually had an experience before where i've had a, a player slide into my dms on instagram to say oh i kind of just said that i was really annoyed but i've had a bit more time to think about it could you kind of add this extra thing in to kind of like <laughs> calm it down um which I, I i did to be fair um and you know i thought that was quite a reasonable request rather than like kind of having a go at me for printing it as opposed to you know oh can i just clarify something further but i think you know, it's okay you yeah. understand it don't you actually like, like i think it's okay to you know, clarify I totally understand how you get annoyed yeah um, yeah, I, I think, and actually it's something, and we'll come on to the Netflix documentary, which is out later this week, which I've had advanced viewing in the first five episodes of, and it makes you realise that the, that first hour after a match, especially like at a slam when it's, you know, one of the biggest matches of your life quite often, it's a really fraught period of time, and I imagine players often say things that they don't mean in that in that period of time, so yes, pinch of salt required as always. And just one final thing on that is like how players deal with that as they go on in their career. Like someone like Federer and Novak, they were always kind of rushing straight out to do press after a loss normally and kind of quite chill. But actually Federer last year in the, the final year of his career suddenly started taking like two and a half, three hour breaks between the game and the the media, um, which was quite quite interesting at the time just to see mm. how he was almost worried for the first time in his career because he was finding it so hard to kind of handle those emotions, which, you know, for someone as cool as Roger, it kind of shows you how he must have been feeling in that last year when he realised it was all kind of coming to an end. And I think probably didn't want to, like, say something silly about retiring on the spot. Um, as yeah. I told someone the other day, I once resigned in a work meeting I wasn't expecting to resign in, um, <laughs> which was just basically a slightly emotional moment and I got a bit hot-headed and I was like, well, yes, I am. Here's my two months notice or whatever it was. And walked out of the meeting going, I don't have a job <laughs> lined up here. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, let's run around some big news lines from the Australian Open. As is always the case with a week to go, it's more about who's out rather than who's in. Um, Venus Williams, who was also in Auckland and also picked up an injury, albeit not related, she is out of the Australian Open. Naomi Osaka is out of the Australian Open, and I think we mentioned last time out. Um, and Carlos Alcaraz, the biggest loss, the world number one, says he is out of the Australian Open. He says he works so hard for my best level in Australia, but unfortunately I won't be able to play. It's tough, but I have to be optimistic and recover and look forward. When I was at my best in preseason, I picked up an injury through a chance, unnatural movement in training. This time, it's a semi-brainosis muscle in my right leg. Um, Google tells me that the semi-membranosis muscle is the most medial of the three hamstring muscles in the thigh. George, you've been injured more times than any amateur athlete I know. Is this one you've pulled? I've never heard of that one. <laughs> I, I may well have pulled it, but I've never heard of it. I, I thought... I couldn't believe he just didn't say hamstring. <laughs> it's so uh, it's so, when I thought it was like a weird mistranslation, like he put it into Google <laughs> Translate and it pulled that out. I don't know, maybe that is the case. But um, <laughs> Calvin, have you pulled this one? No, but it's like what I, found, what I found funny about that is he's like on the exact other end of the pole to um, to Nadal when he'd pull out of tournaments because he's gone so detailed. Whereas Nadal would definitely just go <laughs> leg injury, <laughs> like, 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 and there'd be nothing more. That'd be yeah. it, just leg. He wouldn't. He, sometimes he wouldn't even say injury. It'd be like Rafa Nadal's pulled out of the tournament because of leg, and you know. <laughs> whereas a... this is like we've got the actual, almost like the muscle, the exact muscle fibre 
that's injured from um, from Alcaraz here. Um, I mean, talking about the other end of the spectrum, has, has Osaka actually said anything yet? I mean, it, it's just been a the tournament said you're out. We'll see you next year, hasn't it? She's not put a, a statement out. And let, I, I've had a busy day at work today, so I've not seen anything new. But I mean, that that's really quite odd not to get the artificial Instagram statement saying, "Oh, so glad to miss this. It's my one of my favourite places on earth. Can't wait to be back next year." You know, it's been complete silence, hasn't it? Uh, as far as I can tell, I mean, uh, as a, you know, George, I have also been in the air for 36 hours, so I don't necessarily know everything that's going on, but I haven't seen anything. Calvin? I mean, the first thing I was um, I was with a couple of players when when the news broke and they both said that that's that's late for it. To, she, she'll get a big fine. I'm sure that doesn't bother. She's the highest earning female athlete in the world. But I was thinking about it earlier on is that I think this is it now for, for Osaki. Now, I don't think she'll retire. Um, I, I don't think we'll we'll get that kind of thing, but I think this is now her career going mm. forward. I think this is what we'll get. Where I don't think she'll ever come back to tennis full time now. I think we'll get this sort of thing with maybe seven or eight tournaments a year and late withdrawals and that kind of thing. I mean, and she seems. I'm not sure that's even what she wants to do, but it's probably something she thinks she should do. And maybe when when we get a slot in anything else. But does anybody ever really see her coming back and ever playing a full schedule now? I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because what we're basically talking about here is a chronic injury. Like that—that's essentially what she's. Is it that with. though, or is it? I mean, she has well, said it's, 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 uh, in, she has said in her ideal world she wouldn't play any tournament, or she'd what was it? She'd play as few tournaments as possible. Yeah, and I don't think true. that was injury related, was it? It was. No. Um, I mean, it's it's difficult, but it's difficult because we're we're having to kind of speculate on why she's not playing, but. The assumption is, well, it's one of two things, I suppose, unless it's a physical injury, which is possible, but we don't know. My assumption is it's either, as you say, Calvin, that she doesn't want to play. And actually, this is kind of wrapped up in the other option, which is that she's, you know, dealing with a serious mental health issue around anxiety and that she doesn't feel she can play. And if it's that, then this is kind of like a chronic injury. And because I, I sometimes think it's quite helpful to think about like serious mental health issues as an injury as a sport. sorry i thought i thought you meant she had a, a chronic actual physical injury oh no I, no right. sorry that that is confusing that's me assuming you're inside my head yeah um which you're lucky you're not <laughs> but <clears throat> i th- i assume you know again i'm i'm making assumptions but until she says anything that's that's all we can do yeah i mean the the third option which is perfectly realistic is Stuff this can't be asked. Making it up. Yeah, that, that's care. that's don't what I was thinking. Now, and that's totally yeah. fine as well. You know, mm. that's up to her if she wants to do that. She'll still make a great living. It might be more stress free. You know, there might be meant to have stuff tied in, but it it may also be, you know, that kind of middle ground where, okay, I know this has put me in a bad situation before. I'm kind of happy without this now. There's other things in my life that can fulfil me. Why bother put myself through this? I, I don't have to drive. Yeah. Do we think she would keep earning, though, if she didn't play tennis? Because it's like she doesn't... I can't imagine her doing anything. Like She's not going to go into media. She doesn't seem to really enjoy tennis. So I don't think she... She definitely won't go into commentary and stuff like that. I don't know what else she does. I think she's great fun. I think, you know, she seems like a great girl. But I don't know, like, what she'd do. Would it? Would her... Like, if, if she was no longer playing tennis, would she get all the partnerships that she's got and that kind of thing? Well, she's got the um, in terms of stuff she's doing now. Is I mean, she's got that agency. She signed Jabor again this yes, week. Yes, that, that's the last thing so she said publicly is that she's just signed on. There Jabor. is kind of that arm. There's been the fashion side of things, 
but look, I mean, let's be honest. None of us can really put ourselves in her shoes here. She can do whatever the yeah. hell she wants, and mm. it doesn't make a difference to you financially. I mean, like in terms of, she could pick any passion in the world, fund herself to do it, self-publish a series of children's book for no drop in the ocean. You know, for most people, it seems kind of crazy. But for people with that level of wealth, it doesn't really matter, does it? She has already got a book out, I think, as well. It's called. Um, it's <laughs> called. Yeah. It is. It's called the way champs play, and it is a children's book, as far as I can tell. So she's already done that, so, George. She's at the one step ahead of me, James. She's <laughs> doing what I would do, clearly, apart from the fashion bill, because no one wants my fashion range. Although I did once consider launching the oh, no. uh, the GDB fashion range. GDB, because you're worth it. What? 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 So what? So what you've done there is you've you've taken your initials. And then stolen a catchphrase from another fashion brand. Well, I'd probably change your worth it to something else, but you know, <laughs> but that GDB, was your idea. George, I just how think GDB how... sounds good. GDB. How old were you? you, when you came... money, you how old GDB. were you when you came up with this? Oh, like in my teenage years. Like, oh, that's a bit older than I wanted you to say. Uh, let's... Well, teenage, I'm taking from 13 to 16. So <laughs> All right, yeah, let's move on. Let's move on. I don't want to embarrass you any more than you already have embarrassed yourself. Um, so no Alcaraz, no Osaka, no Venus Williams, albeit I, you know people are getting very upset about that, but I don't really see why they should. Uh, well, I was, I was just going to say the exact same thing. I found the Venus Williams one the most amusing of all because there was this huge furore about her getting a wild card. And by huge furore, I mean purely lodged into kind of tennis Twitter, which is really only ever a tiny, tiny bubble that seems like it's... But it's also, it's also a bubble that we live in, George, so I'm fine with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there was this other kind of angle where, you know, Venus won a, a match, having not won a match in the previous year at all, which was kind of the outrage of the the anti-wildcarders. They were like, how can you give a wildcard to someone who's not even physically won a singles match? Then you had the pro-wildcarders coming out being like, ha she's just won a match and proven all you anti-wildcarders wrong. And then the next match, she pulls a muscle and she's out the whole thing, rendering the entire debate totally pointless. I, I thought that was a... A classic in the uh, the tennis anger ecosystem for no reason. Yes, I agree. Um, does the absence of Naomi Osaka and Carlos Alcaraz, Calvin, you know, two both successful, wildly popular, and young, does their absence take a bit of the sheen off this first Grand Slam of the year? Uh, yeah, for both reasons, for for two separate reasons, I think that you know Osaka's Osaka's still the biggest star in women's tennis in the women's sport. Let's let's not be beat around it. And anything that she's not, anything that she's there in, gets an extra layer of glean, if you will. Alcaraz is, you know, is he still world number one? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, just, I just had a blank moment there. Yeah, he's the world number one player. When he's not there, then you know, it's a problem, isn't it? <laughs> There's no doubt about it. And he'd be in the mix to win it. I don't think Osaka would have been in the mix to win it, but. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's both massive blows to the tournament, I'd say. I think the backdrop as well is you've you've just had the two biggest tennis stars of all time, male or fem- male and female, retire last year. You're really desperate to build this new narrative, knowing you're kind of hanging on to Nadal, Djokovic, okay, even you know Venus, Murray to a, a slightly lesser degree. You know, the one guy you'd want to be pitching going forward as this new era post-Federer is Carlos Alcaraz right now. And the one woman you'd want in your ideal world to be pitching 
as the you know the new Serena Williams or the new biggest name afterwards, who already you know is massive in her own right anyway, is Naomi Osaka, and it it just it's just not quite happening for tennis at the minute in terms of like landing these big stars in the right moment at the right time. So hopefully this is a little blip and things can get back on track. But as we've said before, I'm not sure that will be the case with the circuit, but hopefully these aren't the start of chronic injuries for Alcaraz or that'll be a, another shot to the head for tennis. It is. I mean, it's now been a couple of injuries for Alcaraz as well. He had a knee problem last year. He's got this muscle problem. He had that abdominal muscle at the end of the season as well. I suppose my guess is he had a really big physical jump forward over the pandemic, basically, where he went to um, Ferrero's place in Spain and basically just lit. Well, he did live there and trained there and, you know, matured as a, from a boy into a man. And the, kind of the rest of his body's catching up a little bit. And uh, George, you're a tall guy. You probably had a big growth spurt when you were like 15 well, the, and everything broke. Yeah. Uh, well, the other thing I was going to say is that some, sometimes in my experience, and you know, Calvin could probably speak to this more of the professional level, is quite often when you have like a big joint problem, it does lead to kind of other smaller muscle problems as you kind of come back. So it's not to me that kind of surprising necessarily that he might have had a big-ish knee injury last year. Nothing major, but still bad enough and then some of, something's gone wrong with the hamstring that's obviously kind of quite related in some ways to that area so you know I'm not saying that's 100% what's happened but you do kind of your body can get weakened in different ways when you're not expecting it and you're kind of focusing on rehabbing one bit and and possibly put it at risk of something else but Calvin can tell me that's complete nonsense if he likes No I think there's an element of that but also with Alcaraz I think you've got to look at the way he plays the game it's it's you know, it puts a lot through his body. There's a lot of torque going through his body. There's a lot of hard impact stuff. A lot of people always used to, I know a lot of conspiracy theorists always used to question how Federer was still able to play at that stage of his career. But have you ever seen him play? Like he's so smooth. There wasn't anything that really you could see that's going to cause his body a lot of problems. Mm. Nadal, on the other hand, was different. Nadal, right from early stage, you could see the way that he played was going to have some injury problems. And Alcaraz is the same. It's it's high intensity stuff, and I I don't I think he will be one of those players who always gets injured. Um, I've got some breaking Carlos Alcaraz news. Uh, Southampton and Racing have signed a thirteen point six million euro deal uh, to bring in Carlos Alcaraz from South America in the next twenty four hours. That's, that's it's pretty that's a, that's a good fee for the world number one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty punchy to pull out the Australian Open and then sign a massive deal to move to the Premier League like a couple of days later, if you ask me. But that's uh, that's just my opinion and, and no one really cares. Probably um, thinks conquered the tennis world, now time for the Premier League. Can you imagine if... if I mean, I've kind of... I don't want to go off on a tangent here because we've got loads to talk about, but very briefly, <laughs> I find multi-sport professionals the most incredible thing. Like, think about, like, it obviously happened in, in America a little bit more. Like, I, am I right in saying Michael Jordan, Jordan. tried to play baseball? Went to yeah. um, Ash Gio- Barty. Ash Barty, yeah. I mean, she is basically the only proper modern example. And, like, professionalism in the women's game, in cricket, for example, is still catching up a little bit, so it doesn't quite translate. But Dion Sanders, Tim Tebow, like, it happens in America... The last one I can really think of in like British circles is Dennis Compton, who played cricket for England and football for Arsenal, which is pretty elite. Wasn't there an athlete who tried to go American football kick? 
Uh, it was the Scottish Scottish rugby player he went to he went and kicked for one of the NFL teams, didn't he? Oh, Chris now, Patterson, there was talk about him doing that. There, I mean, no, there's... it was someone more famous than that. It was about 15 years ago. I forget um, who it was. Um, Christian Wade, uh, who played for London Wasps uh, like and England, played professional rugby for England, he went and was like a third stringer for the Buffalo Bills. Um, which, But he never. I, I would never really have considered him to have made it because I don't think he ever made a full squad. He was only ever a practice squad player. Oh, I mean, the it, it was Dwayne Chambers in American football as well. Yeah, but he never he never got signed. Yeah, Calvin. Uh, I mean, the famous one is Bo Jackson, who there's a whole documentary about it. Who played American football and baseball, and both in the NFL and the major league team. Right, it wasn't okay. um, one or the other. Um, there was John Elway. Who yeah. was in the NFL? Mm. He there's some there's a do- great documentary about the year that him and somebody the year when he was drafted, and I think the team who had the first draft pick he didn't want to play for, right. and he said if they were going to select him he'd choose to go and play uh, baseball instead, which he could also have got drafted <laughs> in. Um, so he talked his way out of that. And I, in English terms, I know that apparently um, Phil Neville could was comfortably as good as Andrew Flintoff apparently. Um, at the same year, in the same team and the same England team. Um, they yeah, said he was never... a, a real world-class cricketer, apparently. I'd be quite interested to know who, like, the best tennis sports, like, the best tennis-playing athlete is, i.e. which professional tennis player, I mean, apart from Barty, obviously, has the best record outside. The last one on that, James, I'll just come in. The physio who I used to use and who I use for most of my players now, uh, he told me, well, it's been about 20 years ago now that Andy Farrell, who's Owen Farrell's dad, yeah. would have been the best in the world at whatever sport he chose to play. <laughs> really? Um, and that that seems to be, I think that he was such a good athlete and, and so good at everything he'd done. That seems, I know, I've spoken to other people about that and they've said that that, was, that would have been the case as well. Hmm. Um, well, let us know who, if you know of any tennis players who've gone on and played other professional sports at a high level or, or could have done or would have done, um, drop us a tweet at Unfilter Tennis. That is our new Twitter handle because Tennis Unfiltered is one character too long, um, which is slightly frustrating, but never mind. Thanks, Mr. Musk. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting. I, I, tennis is one of those weird ones. I, I know Andrew... It's Batista Stra- Ragut, isn't it? Yeah, Batista Ragut. So football. he's supposed yeah. to be a very good footballer. But, footballer. But not, never like a record... Well, he played youth football, I guess. Um, I know and uh, the other way around, Andrew Strauss, who used to captain the England cricket team, is a very good tennis player, um, albeit probably too short. Um, and Peter Crouch used to play, didn't he, when he was fourteen? <laughs> well, yeah, is, is that not just like year? it's just like you're a foot taller than everyone? You're probably going to serve. Yeah, like <laughs> at that age, surely just being tall puts you quite far ahead. Um, I, tell you, I tell you, the one who fancies himself most at another sport and is your favourite guy, Calvin uh, Nick Kyrgios. Top basketball player. Uh, you should yeah. see those guys well, in thinks the uh, pickup games. Yeah, <laughs> tough to say that because I mean it, we we know that he plays with some real dogs, don't we? <laughs> I would really love, I'd really love him to go and like play like the summer league or something. Just, I, I look. I mean, if he's good enough, I know he played like youth level in Australia, like I think regional. Um, uh, but <clears throat> if he's good enough, I'd love to see him go and do it. Like, it, like whatever you think of Nick Kyrgios, for a tennis player to go and play basketball for a couple of months would be really cool like and a great story um he's I toy, like, look he's he's there's no question he's athletic and he's mm. i think he's about six six isn't he uh is he as tall as that i don't know i was thinking he'd still be he's a bit a tall guy. short he's six five but yeah. for for nba that's still short right yeah. like 
you know, we all think of Steph Curry as being like not that tall. Six and, three, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and then you like see him in normal life. Like, oh no, he really is tall. Um, right, moving on. Uh, we've only got a few minutes left until the break, but in which case we can cover the Mardi Fish story, uh, which is an excellent one. People may remember that Mardi Fish's uh, Davis Cup selection in doubles caused some controversy. Um, he didn't pick uh, Rajiv Ram, among others. Uh, he was widely criticised. There was a big spat on social media. Tommy Paul started keyboard warrioring. It was great. Anyway, he's been sacked. Um, or, sorry, mutually agreed to move. He's been told he's mutually leaving. Um, in an email to the Associated Press, he said, it was time for me to focus on my business ventures and my firm, Disruptive Family, and my passions for MMA and golf. Um, his firm is called Disruptive. He doesn't just want to be disruptive. <laughs> um, uh, I simply don't have the time to commit to it fully. <laughs> uh, Calvin, how little are you buying that? I don't know. What to commit to it fully? It's like two weeks max. You don't have to commit to it, do you? Um, he's, had a, he's had an absolute shocker. And this is the problem. Look, this is the problem when there was all that, when Leon got all that problem, all that stick about picking Joe and Rajiv, right? Not Joe and Rajiv, Joe and uh, Neil. <laughs> he play. definitely would have um, picked Rajiv. <laughs> J- J- yeah, yeah. Or Joe and Andy, right? You ca- if if you're not going to select the best doubles player or one of the three or four best doubles players in the world, hmm. you better win your doubles matches if you're going to pick it, if you're not, and if it's going to cost you the, cost you the staying in the tournament, you better, you better win. Otherwise, it's on you that. That's a, that's a big call. And you know, and that that was the problem when everyone's going, oh, you know, shouldn't have picked uh, Joe and you shouldn't have picked Joe and, and Neil or you know Joe shouldn't have played. Just won the U.S. Open. It's number one in the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I was going to say the flip side for kind of Leon is like you're bringing Andy Murray in, who's like a three times singles Grand Slam champion, is brilliant. Whereas like the U.S. are bringing in Tommy Paul <laughs> into the camp. You know, yeah. it's like actually, it's not. It's a much easier decision for Fish, and I. I just want to actually say well done to the USTA because to be honest I wasn't sure they would be this cutthroat but they've actually made quite a sensible quick decision on someone who's clearly not up to the job of picking the best players to win a match I also think within this as well that I I I don't know either of them overly well I met Marty Fish when he was a lot younger and I know Rajiv obviously through the work that I do mildly um, and I, I imagine there's a clash, a big clash of personalities there, right. and I think that might have been why uh, Rajiv wasn't picked. And I think that kind of, um, you know, saying Georgie says not up to it. I sure, maybe he's not, but like a big chunk of the job at Davis Cup, rightly or wrongly, is getting the players up for it. Like getting them to enjoy it, getting them to want to come and take their time to come and do it, and getting them together as a group. That's what Leon has, you know. I don't know whether it's him or whether it's luck or whether it's just a good group, but that's what he's done well. Is people want to play Davis Cup for the most part? I think he, yeah. The difference for me would be that Leon's had people to foster the right culture around, whereas Fisher's fostered a culture around a bunch of idiots. To be honest, <laughs> you know, for lack of a better word. Seeing as we're now unfiltered, I mean that is what they are—complete, <laughs> complete tosspots. Tosspots. I don't tosspots. There you go. That's that's me unfiltered for 2023. But <laughs> but am I wrong? Am I wrong there? Like, would you build a team with a winning mentality around that group of players? Would you fuck? No, you'd pick Rajiv Ram, who's a proven 
Grand Slam winner, solid pro, a guy who goes out there and does his best every time you play. That's not true of the rest of that bunch. And that's why he's not up to the job, because it's not it's not a team sport of building pals around your mate. It's building a mentality, a group of players who can go on and win it. And he's clearly not picked the right players to build that around. So, yeah, he's not up to it. Welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered. We will be dipping into the mailbag shortly because we've got um, lots of emails to get through from Nancy, from Nikos, from Paul, from Steve. So if you sent us an email and we haven't read it out or addressed it, then I apologise. But we or don't always get to the mailbag. This is one of the things we promised to do with Tennis Unfiltered, is make sure that we answer your questions more because I know you have lots of them and we'll do our very best to make sure that we get to them. However, uh, George has some questions. Well, I was just going to say, I have, I have none of the answers, so you can keep asking them. But I, I've got nothing useful to say, but Calvin has a few, so well, we, we hope keep addressing so. them to him. We hope so. Um, I thought we should talk about, uh, as I mentioned in the first half, the Netflix documentary Breakpoint, which comes out on the 13th. Now, I would say a day of the week, but I'm in Australia and I don't know what day of the week it is. Um, so I'm going to tell you the 13th of January, which I believe is Friday. Uh, I have had advanced viewing of the first five episodes, which is all that's coming out on Friday. The next five are going to come out in June, and they'll cover the second half of last season. Um, George, uh, I thought since you haven't seen it and I have, you could pepper me with some burning mm. issues that uh, that you might have, and um, indeed that you think our listeners might have. Yeah, I'll, I'll kick off. So. Of the five episodes, which is the one you would recommend most? Or you could give me a, a, a five to one, which which is the one I'm going to enjoy most and Honestly, why. I mean, so like, it's like, George, ask me some questions. Oh, yeah, ask me that one that I really could have done with half an hour to think about beforehand. Um, <laughs> well, I tell you what, I, the, I think the best episode is the last one. Um, it's the Roland Garros episode. It follows Felix Auger-Aliassime. And, and to be honest, I'm kind of damning with faint praise there because I think it's the best one because it has one of the few moments of real candour. Now, it, I should caveat all this by saying that this documentary isn't aimed at tennis fans. Like, you know, Catherine Whitaker mm. does lots of voiceovers explaining the scoring of tennis and the fact that you play five sets at Grand Slam if you're a man, but not if you're a woman. And um this is this is aimed at you know casual normal people who don't like tennis i apologize if that makes us sound abnormal but we all know we're a bit weird in tennis um and so lots of what i saw i was like, oh yeah but i sort of knew that and i'd already seen that or um but the the bit that stood out for me is because it's felix at roland garros the big kind of climax is felix versus rafa and of course felix's coach was tony nadal um and I was watching it with my partner, who doesn't like tennis and tolerates me, and she, it was it was like a side angle of Tony Nadal doing the interview where he says, "Well, of course, I want my nephew to win," and my partner was like, "What an er, what 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 a dickhead!" Like she honestly, she hates Tony Nadal now, um, and it it was it kind of made me realise that like, yeah, like that is kind of a dick move, and I'm sure we said so at the time, but it made me realise it was Did one of those things. Am I misremembering it? Did he walk out of that match? Like, yes, halfway. He re- he refused. Is that captured on the documentary? Uh, yeah, and they like they they grabbed him on the way out as well. Or Amazon grabbed him, and their cameras are there. Oh, so they got it. He said that at that point, or is that? For yeah, yeah he said no. He said it at the time. Um, and yeah, he he said something similar afterwards. I mean, he wasn't shy about it, and and mm. that was actually. And this is the one real candid moment, or one of the few, is 
before the match, but after Felix and Rafa have both won, so they're slated to play each other. Um, Tony Nadal, he goes and finds Rafa, you know, in a player's area somewhere. I think Rafa's maybe just coming off practice court, and Tony like walks up to him, and Rafa sort of looks quite uncomfortable and says, um, "Should you really be here? Like, you know, Felix is in the other corner." And Tony like shrugs and he's just like, "What?" As if to say, "Why wouldn't I be here?" Like. You know who who care who cares that you're who cares that I'm I'm working for the guy that you're playing, um, and it is it is pretty baffling, and it does make me think that actually Ra- Tony pissed off Felix and Rafa in that match. <laughs> that's pre- that's pretty mental, to be fair. I think the point you make about this reaching to other people is really important, though, James. Like it, uh, someone texted me the other day about this, saying <laughs> something along the lines of. Uh, there's only about 10% of it that I found vaguely interesting or enjoyable. And actually taking that step back that, you know, all the people who've seen it so far know the game so well, they know everything about it. And really, this needs to be a vehicle to engage people far beyond tennis if tennis is going to survive in this new weird entertainment world where this is kind of more and more the norm. So, yeah, I'll be interested to see what the reaction is from non non tennis people, tennis yeah. journalists. I don't, I don't know if anyone's done a review of it who's a complete <laughs> non tennis enthusiast because I'd quite like to read that review comparatively. Not that I won't read yours, James. I will. I mean, I you, you, I definitely won't. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I tell you the other, and so this is maybe the next best episode. I think is the Indian Wells episode with Taylor Fritz, um, and I think. The, the the moment, like, you know, which is the big moment, is he's warming up the morning of the Indian Wells final and the camera's on him and then, like, he just screams. And it's not even... it's a, it's a He called it a freak injury at the time and it really was. Like, there's no reason his ankle should be just pinged. And what then follows is, I think it's maybe five or six hours before the final, if that, and basically is a protracted argument between Taylor Fritz, his coach Paul Anacone, and his physio and Fritz is like I'm playing I don't like I can only hit at 60% but I don't care I'm playing like and they get into a basically a stand-up row the physio is like you're putting weeks onto your rehab Paul's like is it really worth it um it's it's pretty interesting in that sense I mean Calvin I'm sure you've had to talk players out of of playing matches when they're injured players always want to play right uh no I've uh, had the other way (laughs) Oh, really? Numerous, yeah, numerous players who would uh, be more than comfortable. I think that's a problem. You know, the best players always want to play, mm. but that's where you really find out who the serious players are. There are some players who who will all too quickly throw the towel in in that mm. circumstance, and you know, maybe for the best sometimes, and maybe not in others. But um, that that I think will be an interesting episode. I'm I'm quite looking forward to watching that. The the whole the whole thing overall. I I am cautious as to like what George just alluded to, like how much they, how interesting that that level of the tour can be, unless they're really opening up everything. And I don't think they will do. I think there was a much better tennis documentary to be made than at the the very highest level. I think there's mm. a much more interesting one to be made that I think would could have been one of those Netflix documentaries that just that just becomes massive via word of mouth because it is a really interesting show other than we're just going to get the most famous people who play the sport and follow them around for a couple of days. 
And I think crucially as well, like if you're going to get the most famous people who play the sport, get the most famous people who play the sport. Yeah. The, the problem is, and as, as I say, I watched it with my partner, and she said, oh, why aren't they interviewing Novak Djokovic? Why aren't they interviewing Rafa Nadal? Why aren't they interviewing Serena Williams? And, you know, the reality is those, those guys didn't engage with it. And, you know, I, I interviewed the producers and said, I said as much. I was like, people are going to wonder why. And they're like, well, you know, they've made their own films, most of them. And <laughs> Paul... Uh, James Gay Reese, who is like you know one of the big brains behind all Drive to Survive and all these uh, documentaries that become so popular, he said, "Look, I think they've all made their own films except Federer." And then he was like, "And don't get me wrong, I'd make the Federer film in a heartbeat, <laughs> you know, pitching for the work." But yeah, they they said, "Well, look, we we had other stories to tell, and and there are stories out there." But I think, as Calvin alludes to, yes, Maria Sakkari is a really nice girl and really interesting, and there are some really low moments in there that are, are pretty you know revealing and you know she says she retired for four days after she had match point in the french open semi-final she like she literally told tom hill i'm done with tennis and then four days later rang him up and was like okay maybe not but um if you're gonna do a documentary about the biggest players in the world you've got to have the biggest players in the world right yeah and i, I was gonna say on the point of like making a kind of more niche document that becomes bigger i was kind of thinking of like in article terms one of my favorite articles and this is Quite bad, I'm going to say this is one of my favourite articles that I can't You wrote it. No. <laughs> it wasn't me. It definitely wasn't me. Okay. But it was someone who could actually write. So. Okay. Um, it was, I think I think it was someone following Juan Martin Del Potro, and they literally went with him on tour for week after week after week. I'll, I'll look it up and confirm the player at some point if I'm wrong. But that was brilliant. I mean, it was just, it was a super lo- mega long article, long read. And I'd love a documentary to be made kind of like that, you know, fly on the wall access into everything following a really interesting character on the tour going through kind of ups and downs and hardships you know it it was so real from the article level that the idea of making a proper film like that and you know there were degrees of the murray documentary where you watched it and you thought oh that was really interesting you've got a bit of a sense of who he is you know what he's gone through and it was an interesting time to kind of film him etc but i think you know even that was kind of directed by his uh, kind of in-law or something so there's probably a little bit of filtering but if you could get a proper completely unfiltered sort of thing like that i think that would be such a good good watch i think this is what i mean there's so many stories you can tell like that but the, the it's not at the top level where the players have usually all got agents and pr people who don't want to let let them speak the venues although the venues might be great the tennis venues they're, they're not really interesting places Indian Wells is a place pretty boring, hmm. you know, whereas you look at like you could you could follow 10 futures players round or challenger players and go to the some really different places and you'll see real, real drama there and real characters and the players will talk because they don't have agents. They don't have PR people. There's no one really to offend. You could go around, say you could go around the doubles tour where again, real characters and you'll get some relationship developing the, the pairs that aren't really getting on that kind of thing and you know the interactions between pairs who aren't getting on new pairs forming that kind of thing and again they don't have agents and pr people i, I without seeing this i you know it might be completely different but i'm really cautious that it's just going to be i don't know whether people remember it's probably from a different generation but the atp used to do a magazine show every week a half hour magazine show that i think is basically like what's going to come on netflix now and in the 90s it was actually really interesting and decent and then as Again, as PR and agents became more involved, it just kind of became a bit pointless because it was just an advert. Yeah. There's, um, there's a f- 
I was going to say, on that book, there's a fab documentary on the WTA tour years ago. I don't know if you've, you've seen that. I think it was on Channel 4 or something. And there were some absolute... I mean, there are some people I actually know who are in it, which does make it all the more humorous. I, I won't... I won't there's a lot... There's a, oh, I was going to say, there's a lot of John Dolan. I, I think we can name John Dolan. <laughs> it's not a secret. It's great. I love JD. He is just absolutely superb at it. Like, he does, like, a shopping trip where he goes and buys a load of suits. And it... it there's like loads of moments where like Cornucopia's refusing to do an interview or something and you've got him trying to pick up the pieces and it's all just a bit kind of calamitous and stuff. I mean, you'd never get anything made quite like that now in the text world. I mean, look, look if you haven't watched it, it's hilarious. It's on YouTube. Look, a couple of years ago, the futures that I was at in Greece with the flash flood, you actually had them, the tournament sending a scuba diver down <laughs> underground to get some <laughs> tennis balls from a flooded basement in an indoor tennis centre. Like that, 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 imagine this. How good a scene that would be! And, <laughs> you know, it's like, but instead, you've got to get. And let's be honest, like, like Nick Kyrgios is, is boasting about his episode, right? Nick Kyrgios is not that interesting a person. When you break it down, he's good for sound bites, but he's not that compelling, is he? You know, when uh, he's not. Yeah, I, I think I, again, having seen the Kyrgios episode, it, it's what I would describe as a whitewash. Um, it doesn't really engage with the fact that, you know, Nick Kyrgios gets in a hell of a lot of trouble for acting the way he does. It doesn't, you know, it it, it, it doesn't refer, obviously, it doesn't make any mention um, of the upcoming court hearing in February. Um, it, it feels, you know, I feel they could have done more with him, but he wouldn't have agreed to it. I, I, and like, you know, this is, that is the reality of it, is that you, you have to play this game between what players want to do, what they want to tell you, and what they don't. Um, I don't know. I, I'm i hopeful for the second set of episodes because that'll bring Yashontek into it. There is a Francis Tiafo episode. I think the USA, one of the US Open episodes is very TFO heavy, and I think he is a superstar, and he's brilliant and funny, and he actually... There's very little of the Djokovic Australia stuff from last year because they weren't inside it, so I don't think they feel it added much. But there's a very funny moment when like TFO is doing an interview when he gets a text and he's like, "Oh shit, Novak's out. That's bonkers." <laughs> and then he's like, he has a little think and he's like, "There's one less guy to worry about, I guess." Um, and it's you know that's pretty much all they cover in terms of the Djokovic visa stuff. But um, yeah, it, I, I look forward to other people watching it because I can get more opinions. He had a, a pretty good US Open as well, too, if they didn't he? So actually, in yeah. terms of some in-court stuff, like that was a good good week to pick him. Yeah, whereas... Like, I, I, whereas... I haven't seen the episodes in lines of how well people have done, but I'm guessing there are some tournaments where they've followed someone who's probably gone out. Well, they followed remarkable. They followed Paola Badosa for about six months, and she, she barely won a match, uh, which wasn't, <laughs> wasn't great. And to be fair, she talks quite well, and I think her episode is maybe a bit later down the line, her featured episode. Um, although no, she does have a bit, no, she's in the Madrid episode. Um, anyway, look, uh, it's out on Friday. It's on Netflix. I hope people who want to watch it get the chance to watch it. But I'm just tempering expectations because if you're a big tennis nut, it, it I'm not saying it's not for you, but it's not made for you. But you will still get something out of it. Um, one it, go, go on. Is it mine and Calvin's homework during the Australian Open to watch all five? Then we can have a, a more hearty discussion about whether we we enjoyed it. Or I mean, not. it sounds Calvin's like Calvin actually face like he doesn't want it. <laughs> so I think Calvin did want it, and then you called it homework, and then he's like, "Well, I'm not doing homework, obviously." 
Um, anyway, as I say, it's out on Friday, uh, and I hope you've enjoyed it. One guy who's featured quite a lot, as I mentioned, is Taylor Fritz. Um, he's had a pretty good preparation for the uh, Australian Open because he has led Team USA to United Cup victory. Uh, they were, I think, the number four seeds, which is laughable because they were so obviously the best team in the tournament. Uh, no, number seven seeds, in fact, they were. Number three seeds, there you go. I've made that up. Went four, seven, three. Well, oh, se- seven minus four is three, James. So you yeah. got there eventually. I'm blaming off. jet lag, and I look forward to using that excuse for at least a week. Um, but they were very obviously the uh, best team. They had the best depth. They had Jess Pagula and Madison Keys, their two women, and Fritz and Tiafo as their two men. Um, they beat Italy in the final relatively comfortably. I mean, it was 4 0, and. I'm not convinced anyone thought Italy were going to win that. If they were going to win it, they needed Lorenzo Mazzetti to beat Francis TFO realistically, and he retired after a set injured. Um, Taylor Fritz beat Matteo Berrettini in a match where serve was not broken. Um, George, we'll, we'll maybe talk about Taylor Fritz a bit more later in the week, but is he someone who, you know, he's had a good run, he's gone well, he, he's he's played a lot of good tennis over the last year. He obviously won Indian Wells, you know, the biggest title of his life last year. It's someone who maybe we can think of as the Australian Open often throws up weird semi-finalists and weird finalists. Would he even be that weird a semi-finalist or finalist? I think I think we've reached the the stage in the the semi to post big three four era where there are no weird semi-finalists who are in the top thirty now. Um, I wouldn't be, and we're also off the back of Aslan Karatsev reaching the semi-finals of the Australian. He's back in form, Open. by the way. He's he's just peaking at the right time again. <laughs> um, so no, I, I wouldn't be greatly surprised. That, you know, this is a top ten player now. If you're asking me, would I be surprised if he won a Grand Slam? Then yeah, I would be surprised. I still don't think I would back him in a best of fives big match against someone else in the top ten. Really, apart from. Perhaps Casper Rude, um, who, as we've said, is doing a great job of mopping up the competition without actually beating the competition itself. Um, but look, he, 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 he's someone that people were desperate when he was really young to be this new big American star, good-looking young guy. Um, it's taken him a lot longer than some people would have hoped to. But you know, any top ten U.S. player is a good thing for tennis that desperately needs to hit that market, particularly with Serena going, you know, the, mm. anyone they can get high ranked. And if, you know, we get to a situation where Tiafa is kind of coming in into the top 20, maybe top 10, you know, having two top American guys in the top 10 would be a really, really good thing to happen in the men's game and one that hasn't looked like coming close to happening for a long time, let's be honest. So, yeah, I, I hope they can do well and keep... Uh, Keep the light on tennis in that fading culture, if you like. <laughs> Crikey, that is unfiltered, George. Fading culture of American tennis. I mean, probably, probably not America, far. full stop, it's fading. Yeah. Top economy in the world, forget it. It's over. <clears throat> They're done. They're gone. I've called it now. Uh, we could talk about pickleball, and people would think that maybe it is a fading tennis culture in America, but that may be for another day. Uh, we're going to go into the mailbag, which is exciting, um, because I have maybe neglected it but um we will make sure if you want to email us our email address is still lovetennispod at gmail.com i will give you a new email address but it'll just that one will forward to it so you can always email us on that if you're a legacy fan 
uh, and you want to remember what we used to be called. Um, we've had one from Nikos Biggs Kiropoulos, who has emailed us before. Um, he says, I'm currently listening to your discussion about the LTA being fined by the ATP. Incidentally, reading lots of these emails made me realise that people don't listen to podcasts the way I think they listen to them. Like, people just go back and listen to... Did that come this week, that email? Uh, yeah, recently, yeah. But I think we did revisit that topic quite recently as well, because okay. I think Guy Evans, who works for the Mail, sent us a question um, about it. So Adams. We... Adams, exactly, yes. Um, Guy Evans once gave me a job interview and didn't give me the job. I don't know why Bastard. I remember that. Hated him. Always hated Guy Evans. <laughs> yeah, never don't liked him. He is. Sorry, Guy. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I'm currently listening to your discussion about the LTA being fined by the ATP, which has perked Calvin's ears, and I'm wondering how much of an embarrassment you, as Brits and insiders, would say it was that Rybakina, of all people, won this year. Personally, being opposed to the ban, I loved seeing her, of all people, win, and I've seen it mentioned in various articles, but that result barely made a ripple in my brackets non-British circles since neither finalist was a big name would you say that people in Britain really took notice that a Russian unofficially won and thus the ban backfired or not so much if they changed their position is it because of fines and no ranking points or does that factor play a significant role um Calvin I, I would maybe put that first question to you as someone who you know opposed the ban I mean do, do you think it it people did take notice and I mean, my missus always says, oh, didn't that Russian one win Wimbledon? And I said, well, actually, she's Kazakh. And, well, she's, you know, we all know that she's from Russia. Uh, I don't think anybody who isn't heavily a bit a huge fan of tennis really spoke about it. I don't, I've, I've not spoken to anybody who's referenced it anyway. Um, what I will say on it, and it's kind, kind of on the same topic, is I was talking with a Russian player yesterday, actually, about it. And he said, you know, and he said much that we expected. He said, like, this isn't our war. This is the idiot who's running the country who's choosing to do this. It's us that have got punished. And all that's happened is it's given him something else to say. The whole world hates Russians and people in Russia who aren't so educated believe things like that. Mm. And he was saying that he doesn't think that, you know, nobody, he said that none of the Russian players he knows are backing the war. That They all hate it. They all, none of them, as far as he knows, are Putin supporters. They're all very much the opposite. Um, And yeah, he just said it it doesn't, it just, it's just infuriating because they're opposed to it. And all that's happening in Russia is it's not turned anybody against Putin and it's turned maybe a small minority to Putin who weren't with him initially, this sort of thing. Hmm. Um, And George, I mean, I'll maybe speak to the second part of the question but obviously feel free to chip in um if they change their position is it just because of fines and no ranking points or does that factor play a significant role um i would say having spoken to some people at wimbledon that uh, a change i'm not going to say it's a foot but i think it's likely that they will change their position I, I think i know it's being very seriously considered i think the position of the tours on that i.e two million dollars worth of fines and the lack of ranking points plays a role in that it has to like you know it's it's a board that runs an organization in the end they have a responsibility to look at that stuff and go that's a problem um i think also the direction of travel i think most people now would agree with calvin i i didn't at the time i now agree with calvin um i think i, I we all I, do I, eventually don't we <laughs> <laughs> it's the inevitability it's the it's the first truth of tennis the wisdom <laughs> i didn't say wisdom george um anyway uh so that, that so yes I, I think that will play a significant role um i don't know if you want to add anything to that george no not particularly i mean i think 
at the time with Akina winning, people were trying to make it into a bit of a story because it is, yeah, it's a story. It's interesting, but it, it sadly speaks volumes of how little tennis is necessarily on the kind of national radar at the minute that probably wasn't as much of a story as it could have been. I mean, had she beaten Serena Williams with the size, I imagine it would have been a much bigger story. But that's just sometimes the way the uh, cookie crumbles in terms of trying to make these things bigger or whatever. Yeah. Um, Let's move on to Nancy, who has sent us an email. Um, She had clearly been listening to the Nick Bollettieri episode and in fairness did send the email about a month ago and I missed it. Um, She says, hi, James, uh, and I suppose the rest of you. Um, Thank you for the great podcast on your memories of Nick Bollettieri. I remember watching him in Andre Agassi's box when he won Wimbledon. He was bigger than life. I was thrilled when Nick showed up one morning when I was attending the adult camp at IMG Academy six years ago. Since I hit both my forehand and backhand with two hands, he called me Monica. I was able to get a 30-minute private lesson with him the next day. He stood behind me while one of the coaches fed me balls and was so enthusiastic and motivating. Such a wonderful memory. He loved the ladies, um, which I think might be a Freeman Millen, Grigor Dimitrov moment. Um, And Nancy's also sent us a great photo of her and uh, Nick uh, from that session, which is uh, really lovely. Um, So thanks very much for getting in touch, Nancy, and uh, great to hear hear your memories of Nick. Um, I'd encourage people who haven't listened to that episode to go back and listen to it because... um, it's you know he's a great figure he was a great figure and he's worthy of lots of time in the game um i've got another question different topic different person john williamson's been in touch he says following the broadcast of the united cup very successful i thought will we see more tennis tournaments broadcast on youtube during 2023 and beyond particularly as prime video are stopping their coverage after 2023 um george i did really enjoy the youtube coverage and i think it made it much more accessible to a lot more people do you think other tournaments might follow suit or actually is there so much contractual obligation wrapped up in this that no broadcaster is just going to give up exclusivity? Uh, that's a really good question. I think the latter is probably more likely at the minute, but there are surely some British rights in the ether at the minute that possibly could explore the option of just some sort of stream. I mean, I, I think it'd be a really, really interesting idea for like a big sport to kind of commit to broadcasting on on YouTube on the regs. Um to put it as down with the kids who might be on YouTube might Haven't NFL just done that? Um, Haven't NFL just um I think they've announced they're doing something big on YouTube, aren't they? All right. Okay. They've so they've done it with like the Champions League final and stuff as well, haven't they? Where they yeah. have a dual BT do it and then the Champions League final kind of on YouTube. I mean Football's obviously starting from a, a bigger standing point than than tennis from that perspective. You know, if 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 you don't subscribe to BT Sport but you love football and know you can watch it on YouTube, you're probably going to do that. Whereas, you know, if I said to you right now, oh, the tennis tour is going to be broadcasting all year and you've got no interest in tennis, but you know, it, the people in politics and in other areas of life. And, you know, thinking just about YouTubers full stop, it's a huge platform. And people really underestimate it until you see idiots running into Aldi trying to buy the £10 energy drink. And you're like, what on earth has been going on here? This is such a weird and bizarre platform. So, you know, tennis tennis could do with thinking outside the box a little bit. And I think there are crazier things to do than just sack off the broadcast packages for a bit and love them all on YouTube. Why not? That's, that's my uh, 2023 rogue plan for tennis broadcasting. I think this, I mean, tennis's rights just seem bizarre. I learned something new about them this week, actually, just how strange the, the tennis broadcasting rights are because um, 
and uh, most of our listeners will know that I coach a player who is playing doubles this week at, uh, and next week at the ATP 250, last week in Poon, this week in um, Adelaide. And the uh, ATP 250 doubles are not shown um, on anything ever, apparently. And I discovered that this week. And then I did some digging into it. And it turns out that for some reason, all the other, everything else is sold as one package. The the 500s, the 1000s, the 250s, singles, uh, singles and doubles, except for the 250 doubles, which the rights are sold separately to local TV, or they're set aside separately for local TV. And But that doesn't always get picked up. And if it doesn't get picked up, they're just not shown anywhere. So in ATP 250 doubles, unless a local TV channel picks it up, no one picks it up and no one can pick it up, which That's I just find utterly bizarre. And the ATP apparently know this is a mess and they're trying to resolve it, but it's tied up in some sort of legal complications and they don't know how to get around that. So now basically what happens as, as what happened last week, unless, unless you live locally to where the tournament is, you can't watch the 250 doubles. And let's be honest, even though I coach someone who's in it, most local TV channels are probably not going to be bothered about picking up ATP 250 doubles. Yeah. Um, which is how... usually on, which is usually on at night, which is primetime television. Yes. Interesting and completely mental. I suppose to answer the question, could we see more tennis tournaments on YouTube? My guess would be no. It sounds far too much like common sense. Um, I've got one about pickle juice after we chatted about it the other week. Uh, Paul Mason emails. He says, thank you for the podcast. I'm enjoying it. Having been encouraged by my son, Tim, who has asked you a few good questions. Yes, Tim Mason. Uh, we have generational listeners. I'm enjoy- I like that. Uh, Paul says, <laughs> I'm a keen club swimmer, cyclist, club tennis player. Cramp is a really big problem for swimmers, especially if they cycled earlier in the day and is not transitory, often will end a session. Uh, several years ago, I read The First 20 Minutes, a book by Gretchen Reynolds, a New York Times journalist, where she examines the evidence around a whole range of sporting myths, e.g. the best recovery drink is chocolate milk. One chapter is on cramp, and she presented some evidence for vinegar being effective. I've started to use this in our swimming club, an adult swimming club. Um, fish and chip sachets are an excellent size. Six swimmers use it. Typically, the cramp clears within about a minute, when any amount of stretching has not. Sometimes the dose needs repeating. My assumption is that pickle juice the American players use is mainly vinegar, and of course the treatment may not work for everyone. But one thing that amazes me is how quickly it works, and I've yet to see any plausible ex- explanation. It can't be through absorption, as that would never happen so quickly. My complete guess is to be effective so quickly, it must be mediated via nerves. Uh, the vinegar is very unpleasant when swallowed from a 7 milliliter sachet. It maybe gives a big <laughs> stimulus to the vagus nerve in the stomach, which carries a lot of parasympathetic nerve fibres. You're into technical levels that are way beyond me, Paul. But uh, these these have the ability to affect the size of blood vessels around the body, which could help clear the lactic acid and build up, causing cramp. Even if that is rubbish, it does seem to work. There are people cleverer than me who might be able to come up with a better explanation. Here's one, Calvin Beton. I, I, I can tell. No, I can't give any information of <laughs> that, but I can tell you that vinegar when swallowed from a sachet is unpleasant because literally 24 <laughs> hours ago, I tried to open a sachet with my mouth and it, it spurted out more than I thought it would. And have it, you yes, had it, cramp since, I, Calvin? I, my cramp that I didn't have disappeared immediately. Um, and so did my taste for the next 20 minutes <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> oh dear that's a very funny thought 
Uh, great. Thanks, Paul, for the email and for the technical expertise. I look forward to... That was amazing. That was, yeah. I think that was up there with my favourite mailbag things. I, I might... feel like I learned so much, even though he claims he wasn't telling us anything. Might... That was great. I might... I might um... I might ask a few players this week what their best I'm, cure for crampers. Can. I'm just wondering, like, if you gave if a player was like in serious pain with cramp, and you gave them the option of having the cramp or swallowing a sachet of vinegar, how many of them <laughs> <would> <laughs> <use> the cramp? <laughs> I'd probably go with the cramp, <laughs> having experienced both. Yeah. Uh, right. Finally, and this one has some follow-up research that I've done. Uh, Steve Gilbert says, just heard your episode from this time in January last year. He really has been going through the uh, the Time traveller. Yeah. When you all made predictions for year-end, oh no, uh, year-end rankings for British players and world numbers one, um, it would be good if you could revisit these and have a discussion, about, and have a discussion about why things were different. Uh, for example, Cam Norrie surprised you all by continuing well inside the top 20 and nobody anticipated Shontek's dominance of the game. Well, Steve... Ask and ye shall receive. I have dug out the predictions from January last year. So, uh, George, you're not going to enjoy this, and neither am I. Did, did uh, you pick up the uh, the young player bit as well? Because I thought oh, I was going to yes. win that one. Oh, yes, I did. Did I not uh, win that? Well, 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 we can discuss we'll get it. There. It depends how you regard winning. Um, right, the number one predictions were as follows. For the men's, uh, I said Djokovic, and you both said Medvedev. So, uh, failures all round. Um... <laughs> I think James, you actually deserve to win that because Djokovic is the true number one who was robbed by not being allowed to get to the tournament. So okay, at least yours enough. played well. Ours sucks. I will say that I said after the US Open in 2021, I said Alcaraz would be world number one within 18 months on the podcast. Is that so true? I think that is he, true he, yes. He's been saying that for a long time. I would, yeah. I, that 80-month figure, I remember thinking that's very early from Cal. He's gone big. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, you okay. said it a few times. I remember yes, it multiple times. times. And um, I'd also like to point out that the previous year I said Dominic Team was going to be World War One, and I think he ended up outside the top 200. So. <laughs> Who's really good at this game? You <laughs> yeah, tell me. <laughs> uh, the, the prediction for the women's game has aged poorly. Um, I, me and Calvin both said Naomi Osaka would be world number one and George Belshaw said Ash Barty would be world number one now George you're going to claim a moral victory uh, oh and- come on that is yeah. I, I was thinking before I was like why the hell did I not go for Sviantec well that's the obvious reason why Ash Barty's yeah. a totally legitimate claim and she actually retired the year as world number one so you tell me who won that one I think yeah. I win that one uh, that no one's a winner there um, right, so you'll also remember that I, we asked each other to predict the year-end ranking for six British players. Um, uh, I'll tell you what, Calvin's won this one, 4-1-1, which is incredible. Um, Cam Norrie, I said, 18, I said 18, George said 23, Calvin said 25, and he was 14. So I win that one, and that is my last celebration of this segment. Uh, Murray, I said 85, George, you said 41, uh, and Calvin said 62. He was 49, so you you take that one mar- marginally. And that's the only one that really counts because it was the most interesting one. <sighs> you are insufferable. Um, Dan Evans, I said 35, George said 51, Calvin said 22, and he ended 27. Calvin scrapes that one. Uh, Radicano, oh, for me. Yeah, Radicano, I said 22, George, you said 13, incredibly. And Calvin said 35, and given that she ended the year at 75, Calvin was closest. Um, I tell you what, here's Calvin's best one. Heather Watson, 
I said 45. George, you said 97. Calvin said 136. She ended the year 133, which is uh, very impressive. 45 was bold there, James. That was a big shower. (laughs) George, you've got louder as this podcast has gone on and you're not drinking. It's very odd. Um, And finally, Carl Edmund, uh, 75, 89, 90. He, he ended last year 581. So narrow <laughs> miss on that one. But Cal- incredibly, Calvin still wins it. Um, I, these do not count as wins. If you, I think if you can they do, because all, all I have to do is go lower. I just think lower I than think you. you. That's. I think the rule should be, if you add all the totals together and it doesn't reach the eventual number, then you don't actually win. So, <laughs> right. Good and that's at least two of them. Um, yeah, I've also I've also got our Grand Slam predictions. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'm going to read out the ones we got that anyone got right. Djokovic Wimbledon. George got, right, got George got Nadal winning uh, the French, and I got Shrontek winning the French. You okay. both said you both said Barty. Um, we all got Djokovic winning Wimbledon, and that's it. That, they are all the preseason Grand Slam predictions we got right. But to be fair, like I'm looking at the list of like people we predicted to win the last two slams of the year. Like almost all of them were either retired or injured by that point in the year, which might say more about tennis than it does about us. I just um, I'm pretty sure I went for Barty winning the French and Wimbledon, which is yes, a significant did. chunk. Well, you, you of the doubled Grand down. Slam you season. doubled down there. Yeah. Um, and in terms of young player advancement, I'm going to rattle through this. Uh, I had Dominic Stricker, who went two four six to one one eight. You had Alcaraz, George, who went thirty two to one, and Calvin had Draper, who went two six five to forty two. Which I think, uh, without doing the maths on it, that I think that's like the eyeball test is that Calvin's won that because you know. I I thought we came up with a specific formula of it yeah, being but it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't really work when you pick players inside the top fifty because like. The potential, like each each place moving from fifty to forty nine, is worth a lot more than moving from like two fifty to two five one, which doesn't seem fair. Anyway, thirty uh, two to one sounds pretty good in terms of like going up thirty two times. That's I think, better. Than I think Draper, you most you mostly heard your own name there, George. Um, finally, <laughs> I've got to do the young women. Diane Parry was my pick. She went one four one to seventy six. George had Anna Simova, 78-23, and Calvin had Goff, 22-7. to I think I might have to do the math to work that one out because they all sound like similar jumps to me. I won that one. Calvin, you had something to say? Uh, no, I don't think you did. I was just messing around with my hand. <laughs> Great. We have a system on the podcast, it's very complicated, where if you put your hand up, you get to talk next, but it really, really falls down if people just hold their hands up randomly. <laughs> And that is all we had time for before the wonders of modern technology. Incredibly, it was George's internet that gave out. Uh, Calvin's in Portugal, I'm in Australia, and George at home in London was the one struggling with Wi-Fi. But I promise that we'll talk about more tennis next week. I feel like we talked about lots of other things this week, but hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, Please do leave us a rating or a review wherever you get the podcast. Now that we've got a new name, it's more important than ever that you go and tell people all about what we do. Uh, But most importantly, please bring yourself back to listen next week. Podcast Network.